All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. Lost my page here. Hold on one second. It's a little bit windy, so I'm going to do my best to make sure that the we don't have any too much wind feedback into the microphone. Okay. I'm not sure what episode this will be by the time that this recording begins to be released, but it will be after we've read Angela Y. Davis's Women, Race, and Class. So we are going to begin reading Letter from a Birmingham Jail, Letter from Birmingham Jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This was written in April 6, written on April 16th, 1963. I'm going to be reading this with a fellow member of the May 30th Alliance. I think that this has a very strong correlation with the reading that me and this uh, same member of the May 30th Alliance did for the uh, essay Civil Disobedience by Henry Thoreau. And so I think that this will be a, a good follow-up to that. Uh, one of the things that I'll do while I'm reading this periodically is try to draw some comparisons to that reading by Henry Thoreau and also just in general try to lay out, uh, in my belief, this is a very a good uh, manual or for reasonings to participate in civil disobedience and reasonings to participate in protest and demonstrations. So here, let's begin. April 16th, 1963. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities, quote, unwise and untimely, end quote. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticism that crossed my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statements in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I am here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the view which argues against, quote, outsiders coming in, end quote. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliated organizations across the South, and one of them is the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Frequently, we share staff, educational and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promise. So I, along with several members of my staff, am here because I was invited here. I am here because I have organizational ties here. But more basically, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their, quote, thus saith the Lord, end quote, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. 
I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, quote, outside agitator, end quote, idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. Okay, I'm going to take a moment to reflect upon that those passages that we just read. There's a, a some of a somewhat of a switching of the subject that begins to come up in these next paragraphs. So I want to try to tackle the the idea of the outside agitator narrative that was put forth regularly during this time period when people from different areas and people from different organizations would come to the South to participate in these direct actions. A lot of times people from the North would uh, would be would come and be part of these direct actions. The Freedom Rides were a case of that. Some of these sit-in demonstrations that was taking take that were taking place in the early 60s and mid-60s were cases of that. And I think that one of the one of the philosophies that we can use here in the current times we are in when it comes to struggling against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice is the philosophy that as long as you are inside the United States, that there is no other place you can go and be considered an outside agitator. Uh, we seen in Ferguson during after Michael Brown was murdered. One of the things that happened was in October, uh, activists in Ferguson participated in helping bus people from all not over just the country but from all over the world to come out and participate in some of the demonstrations that were going forth in Ferguson and that solidarity that was shown is something that I, I believe is a, a tactic and an instrument that we can use to uh, to cripple these systems that we are combating and that we are fighting against because as, as easy as it may be for some of these systems, for the system in Rockford to oppress the people in Rockford and to repress the people in Rockford, it becomes much more difficult when it has to then repress the people in Rockford and the people in Belvedere and the people in Beloit and the people in Chicago. And another one of the things that happens with this is that the, the story and the narrative uh, uh, becomes uh, wider in scope when people from other areas come and bear witness to what somebody is or what a group is or what an organization or a community is dealing with inside of one specific city. And that was something that was heavily uh, done in Birmingham or used in Birmingham and also in Selma and, and in, in multiple times in different areas during this time period is people will come from New York and people will come from Illinois and Michigan and all these other places and will participate in these uh, demonstrations that were going on in Alabama or we're going on in Mississippi or we're going on in Louisiana and then they would <clears throat> go back and tell the stories of what they experienced. Uh, news reporters would come from all these different areas, all these different cities to come to the city that was the the hub of the demonstrations or the uh, the, the main center of these demonstrations and 
by them broadcasting to other areas outside of just where the demonstrations were taking place, what was going on in these demonstrations, it again helped to uh, uh, stir up the consciousness and stir people out of their, their lethargy and their, complacent, their complacency when it came to some of these issues that were going on. And as we've seen here specifically uh, with the, when it comes to the, the issue of police terrorism in Beloit, in DeKalb, there were officer-involved shootings that happened, and it was through trying to communicate with people that lived in those areas that we got information about those officer-involved shootings, but we also seen the limitations that we could go to to try to raise awareness to these officer-involved shootings and try to participate in and trying to get justice for these officer-involved shootings because of the fact that there wasn't a stronger uh a stronger connected interconnectedness with some of these other cities, with some of these other areas. And so I think that we can learn lessons from the past when Dr. King speaks about the affiliates that he had, uh, that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference had uh, throughout the area and how they uh, relied upon each other and uh, leaned upon each other for assistance when it came to uh, financial issues and also when it came to uh, issues of protesting and demonstrating. Uh, did you have anything you want to add there? You want to here take this next portion here? You'll start right here over uh, you. You deplore. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the uh, black community with no alternative. And in, in any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist. Negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in, in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Black people have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of black homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, black leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then last September came the opportunity to talk with leaders of Birmingham's economic community. In the course of the negotiations, certain promises were made by the merchants, for example, to remove the store's humiliating racial signs. On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement 
for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. A few signs briefly removed returned, the others remained. As in so many past experiences, our hopes had been blasted, and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action, whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and the national com community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure, endure the ordeal of jail? We decided to schedule our direct action program for the Easter season, realizing that except for Christmas, this is the main shopping period of the year. Knowing that a strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt that this would be the best time to bring pressure to bear on the merchants for the needed change. Then it occurred to us that Birmingham's mayoralty election was coming up in March, and we speedily decided to postpone action until after election day. When we discovered that the Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Bull Connor, had piled up enough votes to be in the runoff, we decided again to postpone action until the day after the runoff so that the demonstrations could not be used to cloud the issues. Like many others, we waited to see Mr. Connor defeated, and to this end we did endured postponement after postponement. Having aided in this community need, we felt that our direct action program could no longer could be delayed no longer. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Why, you are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to dramatize, to dramatize the issue so that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking. But I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis, and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help 
men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. You have a. Uh, I think one of the things that I would I would speak on from that passage initially is from one of the first segments that was that was read. Dr. King speaks about diagnosing the issues that existed in Birmingham. He and in diagnosing those issues, he points out specific things that have taken place in Birmingham that are unique to the to its city, and I think that that is another. Uh, uh, philosophy or tactic that we have that we, that it, that we have to begin to implement in the struggle for police terrorism, struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And I believe that that's something that the May Thirtieth Alliance has put at the forefront of of our actions and of of our of of our philosophy is not simply just saying that police terrorism exists not simply just saying that mass incarceration and racial injustice exists in Winnebago County and in Rockford Illinois but diagnosing it and uh being able to articulate and inform people all the different ways that it manifests whether that be with when it comes to racial injustice and police terrorism pointing out how and black people get pulled over three times as often as white people within in Rockford, Illinois, by the Rockford Police Department. And there is three times as many white people that live in Rockford, Illinois, whether that's pointing out uh, when it comes to racial injustice, the RPS school district. 205 versus People Who Cares lawsuit, which goes in goes into detail speaking about the type of segregation that was done in the educational system in Rockford, Illinois for decades. Uh, whether that uh, when it comes to mass incarceration, speaking about some of the conditions inside the Winnebago County Jail, when it comes to police terrorism, speaking about how since 1990, on average, two people are killed by police officers and law enforcement inside of Winnebago County, whether that goes into the uh, uh, detailing histories of violence that different uh, police officers in the Rockford Police Department and the Winnebago County Sheriff deputies have had, uh, as well as uh, articulating how the, the dangers that c civilians are put in due to high-speed pursuits. And so all of these, all of those different things go into diagnosing the issue. So that way we... And I think that it's important to diagnose the issue that exists in Winnebago County because the issue that exists in Ogle County may is going to be different. It's going to have its own unique characteristics. The issues that exist uh, outside of Rockford and Chicago or that exist outside of Illinois and Michigan when it comes to police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice, each one will have its own characteristics and uniqueness. And in order for us to ad accurately and adequately combat these things, we must know the specific characteristics and uniqueness that these issues have in all the different areas that they are in. And I think once that that diagnosis has been made, then we get into some of the things that Dr. King is laying out here, which is uh, methods of preparation to address those issues or to absolve those issues. And I, I think that regularly when people participate in protests and demonstrations, that there should be a, uh, a Dr. King laid out four specific steps, but there should be steps that are taken for people to ensure that the the demonstrations or the protests that are being laid out are going to be productive to the issues and that there is a, a, a 
objectives that are set out to be uh, reached from these from these protests or from these demonstrations. And I also think one of the things that Dr. King pointed out there is the the not trying to not being uh, fearful of tension being there, uh, but making sure that it's the proper kind of tension. I think that that is one of the things that a lot of people who aren't educated or informed about demonstrations or protests don't understand a lot is that uh, the protest and demonstrations are to bring tension, which already exists beneath the surface to the forefront. So that way it is not just subjugated groups and marginalized groups who are dealing with this tension, but that the whole of a community or the whole of a city must confront and deal with the tension that is existing when it comes to some of these issues in our society. Uh, and I, I just, and before I begin to read again, I just think that uh, as one of the parts that I believe is uh that sort of separates the letter from a Birmingham jail from civil disobedience by Thoreau is that Dr. King lays out a philosophy and a thought pattern that is a little bit more easy to put actions to than some of the philosophies and thought patterns that uh, Thoreau laid out, and specifically because Dr. King was uh, part of org- part of an organization that was actively uh uh, taking actions to try to absolve themselves of some of the issues that were existing. Uh, yeah. Where'd you say you was at? Oh, yeah. I, th- I think uh, part of the point here is that it takes uh, sacrifice and work for people to get to a place where they under, they they have a heightened understanding of oppression in, in the society that they they live in and how it affects uh, each different people differently and how it how we're all interconnected and uh, and just against directly against one person directly affects all of us and it takes uh, knowledge that has to be worked for to be able to understand how how these systems of oppression work and how best uh, we can go about uh, addressing them and bringing tension to the surface uh, to try to bring about uh, change. Is that the, the purpose right here? Okay, we're going to knock out one more passage and then we'll end this episode. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in a monologue rather than dialogue. One of the basic points in your statement is that the action that I and my associates have taken in Birmingham is untimely. Some have asked, quote, why didn't you give the new city administration time to act, end quote. The only answer that I can give to this query is that the new Birmingham administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it will act. We are sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Albert Boutwell as mayor will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Boutwell is a much more gentle person than Mr. Connor, they are both segregationists, dedicated to the maintenance of the status quo. 
I have hope that Mr. Boutwell will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation. But he will not see, excuse me, but he will not see this without pressure from devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Nabor has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was, quote, well-timed, end quote, in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, quote, wait, end quote. It rings in the ear of every black person with piercing familiarity. This, quote, wait has almost always meant, quote, never, end quote. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that, quote, justice too long delayed is justice denied, end quote. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, quote, wait, end quote. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, excuse me, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million black brothers and sisters smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and see tears swelling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, quote, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? End quote. When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel, motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading, quote, white, end quote, and, quote, colored, end quote. When your first name becomes, quote, nigger, end quote, your middle names becomes, quote, boy, end quote, however old you are, and your last name becomes, quote, John, end quote, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title, quote, Mrs., end quote. When you are hairy by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a black person, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. 
when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of, quote, nobodiness, end quote, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. And I think that's a perfect place to end off this uh, first episode at, or first episode, this first reading at for this specific, uh, for the letter from a Birmingham jail. I think that that last segment, which was specifically about patience and, and, and timing, I'm, mm, I'm trying to think when, uh, this is, this isn't the exact way that this quote goes but it's something along the lines of when you are right you can't it's when you're right you can't be impatient or there's no way to be too impatient and when you're wrong uh, there's no way to be too patient and I think that that is something that I've 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 added to my philosophy when it comes to the issues of police terrorism mass incarceration and racial injustice and that is that we are the the situation is too dire and the gravity of the situation is too heavy to try to wait for the right time or to try to wait for uh the perfect time or a better time as opposed to uh uh here i'll give it to you so you can say it uh as opposed to uh, uh as opposed to uh doing things in the moment that we are in presently the moment that we're in currently uh specifically because of the fact that these issues are not issues that have just recently manifested themselves or that have just manifested themselves uh, today or a year ago or two years ago, five years ago. When we speak about the issues of police terrorism, Dr. King just pointed out here in a letter that was written in 1963 how black people are routinely and regularly being murdered by police officers. When it comes to the issue of mass incarceration, we're reading uh, Dr. King in 1963 writing about these issues from inside of a jail. When it comes to the issues of racial injustice, we're reading how in 1963 uh, black people are being lynched and being murdered in the streets by uh, by white vigilantes. And we just had in 2021 a, a trial that took place uh, for, of uh, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery where a black man was lynched in in Georgia in the streets in the south and so it's clear that uh these issues that exist have been in existence for an extremely long time and it's going to take us in a, in an honest aspect and an honest assessment an extremely long time to adequately absolve ourselves and our society of these issues uh, but it's not something that is going to a, a, a good time is going to present itself it's something that we have to uh, every day from this point forward or from whatever point forward it may be for you begin to struggle against these things begin to actively try to fight against these things and not simply just trying to change laws or change policies but changing the consciousness of the communities that we live in changing the ideology and philosophy and thought patterns of the people that we interact with on a daily basis and I think that for me this one of the things that's important about the letter from Birmingham jail is that Dr. King is is uh, 
doing something twofold. One of the things that the specific letter is doing is he's addressing members of his clergy. He's addressing members of a community that he's a part of, and he's addressing their thought patterns. He's addressing their consciousness. He's addressing uh, their belief system uh, on a uh, micro level, on a, a basically a one-on-one type of a level. But at the same time, he's pointing out how the actions he is taking is addressing a larger community, a larger uh, set of people which is the community that is in Birmingham, which is the white community as a whole that is in uh, America. Also, the black community as a whole that is in America, because as these demonstrations and as these protests are taking place, not only are they challenging the, the system of white supremacy that exists, but they're also challenging the system of black inferiority that exists. And I think that same thing can be true when it comes to issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, is that a lot of the people who begin to be involved in these struggles for against police terrorism and mass incarceration end up dealing with the uh, the issues of police terrorism and mass incarceration and so one of the things that happens is you challenge people's belief system on what policing is and what police are and what jailing is and what jails are but you also challenge people's belief systems on what people who are considered felons or people who are considered criminals or people who are considered uh, convicts are because of the fact that uh, you're you're participating and being active in these things. And so here, yeah, I'll pass this off to somebody else. All right, okay, so then we'll uh, end this episode here and then we'll uh, come back and pick up where we left off at with reading Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, I would encourage anybody who has not uh, read this themselves or who hasn't listened to Dr. King, Dr. King's audio of it, I think that his audio is very... Uh, uh, it's very productive to listen to also to please go and read and listen to those things. If you haven't listened to previous episodes of Rafa Reading Daily, uh, go back and listen to those previous episodes and uh, share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Uh, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Rafa Reading Daily. We outside.